Money FM 89.3. Best of your money. Market View on Money FM 89.3. Asia-Pacific stocks are trading mixed this morning following a volatile session on Wall Street overnight, which ended largely in the red. Sydney is down nearly half a percent. Tokyo is in the red as well. But buyers are keeping Seoul above water. The Kospi is up about 0.2%. Joining me now as we break down all the market action, he's Kyle Roda, live from Australia, where he's an analyst with IG. Kyle, good morning. So we know words are important and perhaps never more so when markets pass through the of the United States' top central banker. Yesterday on the show, we talked about how U.S. Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell has decided to, quote, retire the use of the word transitory when talking about rising prices. Overnight, in testimony to the U.S. House of Representatives, Powell went even further. He says he is, quote, not at all sure that inflation will fade next year. So, Kyle, what do you make of Powell's pivot? Market watchers say he seems to have turned overnight from a dove who was hesitant to tighten monetary policy to a hawk, more likely to raise rates. Yeah, exactly. Uh, obviously, it's something that's really inflaming the volatility at the moment, and it's a bit of an issue because unlike what we saw at the start of the pandemic where the Fed had wriggle room to basically you know, set off a monetary policy cannon to support asset prices, um, they're clearly not in that position now, and the language has changed quite considerably. I mean, I think really the Fed got the message from the public, uh, from, from politicians, um, and of course from mar- financial market participants that um, it's almost become uh, something of a travesty to continue to use the word um, transitory um, because quite clearly um, it's, it's no longer true. It hasn't been a transitory phenomenon mm-hmm. and it's very likely not to be a transitory phenomenon and, and ease anytime soon. So the Fed's clearly taking inflation seriously. Um, I think they're probably concerned that with the new variant it could continue to exacerbate the cost push and uh, pressures that are keeping that's keeping inflation elevated. Mm-hmm. So they're we're really trying to warm up the market now to the prospect of tighter policy, and, and we're seeing that discounted in, in market prices. Now, U.S. markets certainly didn't like Powell's cautionary note about inflation. They're spooked by the new Omicron variant, of course, as well. Omicron has quickly become the dominant strain of COVID-19 in South Africa, the first country to sound the alarm. Overall, COVID case numbers there have doubled. The U.S., meanwhile, has reported its first confirmed case of Omicron. So, Kyle, the key questions seem to be, one, Will existing vaccines provide protection against the new strain? And if not, how long will it take to develop a new booster? And two, to what extent will Omicron force shutdowns and slow economic growth and supply chain disruptions add to those woes? Now, you're not an epidemiologist, so I won't put that first question to you about vaccine protection. But tell us, what do you think about Omicron's potential economic impact? Well, we just don't know, and that's why we're seeing this volatility at the moment is because, you know, a couple of those questions remain unanswered. We don't know whether the, the new variant is going to be, you know, um, similarly severe to the one, to the variants that we've already experienced, or if it's worse, it could possibly be even milder, and that's, you know, perhaps even a bullish thing for markets, but still we don't have answers to those questions. Um, and given the fact that, you know, like you said, we, we still haven't got quite clarity around whether the vaccines are going to be effective and how uh, infectious this particular variant has, happens to be and whether we're in a situation where, you know, quite conceivably, we're back at the, you know, pre, pre-vaccine days of the pandemic where, you know, we're trying 
to protect our hospitals, uh, hospital systems across the globe and, and, and minimise the, the human cost um, from the virus, um, you know, it remains quite likely if some of those uh, questions that, you know, uh, come with answers of the virus being more severe, they are, if it is vaccine resistant and, and more infectious, then lockdowns become the only um, solution for, for policymakers to protect, uh, to protect human life and to protect um, health healthcare systems. Mm-hmm. We're back in a situation where, you know, that could be a huge hit to economic growth. So, you know, when we're a few weeks probably from getting those answers and until we do, it's probably going to be the case that all you can be really certain about is that volatility will persist. Mm-hmm. Uh, because right now, we're just, you know, really wildly speculating on what this what this thing means and, and what the response will be from policymakers. Well, I want to pick up on that point of volatility. The S&P 500 has posted its worst two-day sell-off since October of last year. It fell more than 1% overnight. The Nasdaq and the Dow, they did even worse. It was a volatile day of trade, though, as stocks initially rallied. Overall, the Dow experienced a 1,000-point swing. So, Kyle, with inflation and COVID-19, both at least in the short term here to stay, what is an investor to do? What do you think are some possible factors to think through when coming up with the investment strategies? Yeah, well, I suppose going if you if you're fairly nimble, moving into something with a little bit more safety, and, and um, we're seeing a lot of clients obviously trying to you know, and the market participants you know moving into to the Japanese yen and Swiss franc is a, is a bit of a haven there. Um, you know, stocks are being just dumped on on a wholesale, and there's you know um, liquidity and security being sought in the U.S. dollar and, and, and U.S. treasuries as well. Um, at the moment, it's really really tough because you know if you're a long-term investor and you you, you know really um, you know want to be able to look through these kind of short-term issues, you, you kind of don't want to pull the trigger too quickly and, and say go to cash straight away on the basis that we're still speculating about what this this virus may mean. But mm. I think it goes back to the, the, the issue of remaining for, for a long, someone who's a little bit more um, interested in the long-term prospects of the market, it's probably trying to get a bit of a feel first on some of these answers to, to, to those unanswered questions around uh, the virus as to whether you start to really look to, to, to move out of the, the equity market because it's potential hit to growth. Um, on, that, on top of that too, I mean, really, if you're a trader like many of the, the clients at IG happen to be, it's becoming. It's, you really have to remain, um, you know, really um, quite nimble with your risk management and being very, very attuned to the headlines because we're seeing pretty much um, markets, you know, drop, you know, a thousand points effectively on the Dow on on a day-to-day basis. You know, when there's a, a scary headline that comes across the news wires. So, again, it really depends on how you like to approach this market. That um, it's first trying to get um, a, a reasonable feel of what um, of what this actually means, and second to that, um, remaining fairly sensitive to the news flow um, because if you don't you can really get yourself burnt in the short term. Kyle, let's turn to China next, where property developers are facing 12 billion US dollars in trust payments coming due this month. Now, the firms have already defaulted on more than 10 billion US dollars of these high-yielding short-term products this year. China Evergrande has been dominating headlines, but another company that's been struggling as well is Kaisa. It's been selling off assets in Hong Kong in order to avoid a liquidity crunch. So, while concerns over Chinese debt have spooked markets on and off over the past couple of months, developers have largely averted the worst case scenarios. Kyle, how concerned are you that their cash woes could grow worse? Well, I mean, I think the situation is, is that there's a growing there's, there's, there's a growing confidence and established confidence that policymakers are working behind the scenes to ensure that 
these companies are uh, liquid um, and that they're able to meet at least a, a, the lion's share of their obligations and, and especially those those liabilities that are owned to um, domestic financial institutions. When you're talking about dollar bonds and especially those dollar bonds owned by offshore entities, it becomes a little bit more hairy because you have to ask yourself, you know, where are they uh, effectively in line when it comes to, um, you know, reclaiming their, 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 their assets, um, more or less, um, and to what extent will um, Chinese policymakers prioritise um, those those bondholders um, when it comes to you know the, the haircuts that are inevitably going to be seen on, on some of some of this debt and, and the, the money that needs to be paid back to them. So at the moment, um, I think that what we're seeing is uh, some quiet behind the scenes support being provided to these companies by um, central or regional authorities to make sure that they remain fairly liquid. Um, but there remains a, the non negligible risk of a default. And I think if there's ever any kind of language out of the government that they're going to allow some of these companies to to to, to fail or default on these uh, on these liabilities, which I don't think they will, but if they were to, um, you're going to start to see those concerns about the property market rearing its head again and those financial stability risks um, being elevated once more as well. So it's a very opaque situation at the moment and the markets are just hoping and taking for granted that central authorities have under control. So do you expect Chinese debt issues will be an overhang on the markets, both in and outside of China, in the year ahead? Well, yeah, the problem is now is that, you know, how easily they can access uh, capital in the markets and whether they're going to be in an environment where, you know, they can continue to do so, um, especially those companies that are highly leveraged and, you know, need to basically remain um, pretty heavy borrowers to try and get themselves out of this situation that they're in in what's potentially a lower growth environment. And I think, you know, that really comes back to the policy settings that um, authorities are, are looking to set for the next 12 months. Are they going to Pumping uh, fiscal stimulus to try and you know boost demand is the PBOC going to increase liquidity in its financial conditions um, to make sure that again you know borrowing is is reasonably um, uh, well supported um, and that these companies can remain at least uh, afloat in the short term while some of these structural issues are, are all worked out. So you know for me at the moment from from China you know there's some signals that maybe are at the worst of things in terms of this slowdown and maybe the common prosperity portion this crackdown on the private sector has has eased, uh, but we haven't had any clear explicit signals yet that they're looking to stimulate um, and they're looking to, to encourage credit growth again. And until that's the case, um, you know, you, you would be suggesting that it will be difficult for these companies to, to issue debt into the market um, because no one has a real confidence in the, in the economic backdrop or confidence in the financial conditions in China yet um, that, um, that it remains a, a viable thing to do. In other Chinese news, regulators are reportedly closing a loophole that has allowed companies like Alibaba and Tencent to list shares overseas. And if true, the overhaul of the so-called VIE rules would be one of Beijing's biggest steps to crack down on overseas listings. Following the U.S. IPO of ride-hailing giant Didi, that went ahead despite China's regulatory concerns. What do you make of these um, uh, recent overhauls? Is this going to limit the ability of Chinese companies to raise funds, Kai? It will do. Um, and I think if you put it in this sort of geopolitical and strategic context, it's one of the reasons why we saw um, China so keen um, to wrest control of Hong Kong in the last 18 months or so um, and ensure that effectively its financial system is an asset um, to the Communist Party and the Communist Party's goals. So Hong Kong is effectively, um, you know, a, a well-established, obviously, um, and a fairly ample uh, capital market, uh, which can really offer that bridge for China to the rest of the world to be able to continue to finance itself um, and to be able to continue to support, you know, its private sector and what have you. Um, so I think what we're 
probably moving towards at the moment is certainly this greater um, sort of Cold War mentality between the um, Chinese and, and certainly you know the United States and some Western nations, um, where there'll be almost a, a slow emergence of two uh, competing financial systems. Um, and China really wants to ensure that it remains uh, in touch with global capital markets. It has the, the infrastructure there to do so. Um, and again, that's like I said, one of the reasons why you know the, the, the kind of I suppose quiet takeover of Hong Kong has been so significant. So um, again, it's it's all in that kind of broader geopolitical play that we're seeing at the moment. But I think this will be a trend that continues where, you know, um, China will be basically reluctant, if not completely disallow its uh, private companies to access um, capital markets in other countries that are hostile to its interests. And we'll see that kind of greater divergence between, um, you know, the East and Western emerges as a result. The China Securities Regulatory Commission has said so far that the media reports about closing the VIE loophole are not true, but it has not given any details either. Now, Kyle, when we've talked about Chinese stocks, you've been unabashedly bullish. It's been a rough year for Chinese stocks, though, particularly in the tech sector. So what is your take on them now? I think there's two things as an investor you sort of wait for, or at least a trader that you wait for as well. Um, first, it's indications, like I said before, that policymakers are tra- uh, changing their priorities, and that's moving away from the common prosperity uh, rhetoric and away from the crackdown that we saw on the private sector. Um, the other thing that we look forward to is effectively, you know, which companies is it that the Chinese Communist Party has a real strategic and political interest and economic interest in ensuring that they survive and succeed. And I think that's really, you know, the, the two things that have to be considered before buying back into this market. Now, there's some signs that China's policy policies make it, sorry, China's policymakers are more amenable potentially in the near to, to um, increase stimulus. So that's a positive. At that point in time, it's down to the discernment of the investor to see, you know, which companies does do, do the central government um, have an interest in seeing prosper and survive and um, effectively um, use to, to, to forward uh, their strategic interests. I think those companies will outperform in a very, very good long-term plays. Um, but we're at that sort of juncture still where we haven't got clear indications whether it's, it's time to go in terms of putting money to work there. But I think in the long run, these, these, a lot of these companies, these big companies are good. They serve the government's interests um, and investors will be rewarded for taking those risks. Um, in the shorter term, though, it's, it is a risky proposition, especially given the fact that we haven't got clear indications that um, you know, this, this mentality from, from central authorities has, has changed towards the private sector. We turn next on our world tour to Turkey, where the lira has weakened once again, this time following news that Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan is replacing the country's finance minister. The Turkish lira appears set to revisit a record low that it hit earlier this week. The lira down 45% since the beginning of the year. Now, whenever we hear about a major emerging market currency like the Turkish lira or the Argentinian peso or the Thai baht, for that matter, facing a major sell-off... To be clear, in this context, we're only talking about the lira. Markets get jittery. And the question on top of everyone's minds is this. Is there a risk of contagion? Could the lira's fault reverberate outside Turkey? What do you think, Kyle? Well, there is a risk of of contagion. um, But I suppose the question becomes how high a risk is it? And at the moment... I don't think it's a considerable one because I think if you look at other emerging market crises and how they reverberate across the globe is that it tends to be an environment where capital is being sucked out of emerging markets 
um, that financial conditions globally aren't supportive and liquidity becomes an issue in financial markets, uh, people get nervous um, and, and what have you. We saw that in 2018 when we saw um, you know, the kind of last really big bout of volatility in the Turkish lira for one, uh, but also in broader emerging market currencies. We're, we're not at that juncture yet, but there is that concern as global inflation pressures build and the Fed looks to tighten um, effectively global monetary policy. That exposes some of the cracks in the system uh, and means that there's a greater risk that a localised issue like what's happening in Turkey, which is really just down to the fact that um, Erdogan's an incompetent economic manager, quite frankly, and, and doesn't understand the economy, um, that can turn into that can evolve from a, a, a regional Turkish Turkish issue uh, to a one of a global contagion uh, risk. If again, global financial um, uh, conditions and, and global monetary policy is a little bit tight, so it's one to be reasonably wary of going forward. At the time, for the time being, again, it looks pretty isolated to Turkey and, and poor economic decisions and policy making decisions there. Um, but again, if you get that sort of situation where um, uh, the, the backdrop becomes less favourable for emerging markets, those things can spread. And of course, when you talk about Turkey, you do worry about obviously the European banking system and what sort of stress it puts on, um, yeah, the, uh, the, the European banks. Kyle Roder joining me live from Australia. He's an analyst with IG. Kyle, let's turn to corporate news. We have another major tech firm that is changing its name. It seems we're still getting used to having to call Facebook by its new name, Meta. And now the payments firm Square is undergoing a branding exercise as well. It is now called Block in a nod to its focus on the blockchain. The move comes just a few days after Jack Dorsey announced that he is stepping down from Twitter. Dorsey remains the head of Square. I mean, block, of course. Kyle, what do you make of Square's metamorphosis? Well, I mean, I think it's clearly indicative of Jack Dorsey's latest um, venture and uh, into his imagination, I suppose you could say. Um, you know, clearly he fashions himself as a bit of a visionary and has moved away from Twitter, effectively seeing that his work there has been done. He's got, you know, very little more that he can do uh, to really influence, um, I suppose, the social media space and the, um, I suppose, uh, all the things that, that, that Twitter happens to do. For me, I'm, I'm reasonably sceptical uh, about the, the, the evolution and, and Dorsey's ability to turn this company into something profitable because he actually doesn't have a great track record of running profitable businesses. He, he's very much motivated by separate concerns from that of the shareholder, rightly or wrongly. Um, but clearly, it's an, an indicator of um, Dorsey's interest in trying to um, move forward into a different space, um, to, to move forward into you know, markets that he sees as being you know, disruptive. And of course, that's you know, where the, the, the blockchain comes into things. And you know, quite naturally, it's a very pertinent thing for, for the Australian stock market down here because you know, Square's, Square's um, a, a, a takeover of, of Afterpay is a very, very big deal for, for Australian investors. So um, at the moment, I, I am skeptical of Dorsey's ability to, to um, find a vision and execute on it and, and um, make it a profitable business. Uh, but by the same token, it, it does clearly indicate that he sees his opportunities and growth opportunities um, commercially elsewhere um, and that, you know, in the future, that's where that's where um, investors all have to follow to, to, to sort of see uh, what level of success that he has. Also, the Walt Disney Company will soon have a new chairperson. Susan Arnold set to replace Bob Iger, who steps down at the end of the year. Arnold has served on Disney's board for the past 14 years. Kyle, what impact could this have on Disney's business and how do you expect the markets to react to this leadership change? I think there's a level of nervousness just because Disney's been such a strong um, business for, for such a long time and under, uh, under his reign, it's, it's been um, a company that's um, really managed to evolve itself, especially as it relates to sort of the new frontier of entertainment that we're, we're used to with, with streaming and what have you as well. So 
I think you know it's something that will probably affect the share price to the downside. There'll be a little bit of a risk premium baked into it on the basis of you know new management and potential um, you know I suppose um, uh, rookie mistakes that could emerge from from management as it looks to carve out a future um, you know in a not a different direction, but certainly with um, new, yeah, a new new stewardship. But um, you know clearly investors overall are still quite enthusiastic of the stock. They're still very um, enthusiastic about where the, the business is heading. Mm-hmm. Um, but there'll be questions that the that investors are asking themselves about, you know, um, what can the business do under under new, like I said, new stewardship? Um, and I guess it simply remains to be seen, but I do think that'll be discounted in the share price in the short term. The software analytics firm Snowflake is reporting a 13% jump in third quarter revenue, and that beats expectations. Big data is one narrative that investors definitely seem to like. What is your take on the sector as we move into the new year, Kyle? Uh, again, it remains a growth growth sector, I think, and I think it's become even more pertinent throughout the pandemic that having that information um, is uh, and and being able to monetize um, data um, is uh, forever and more important than than what it was pre-pandemic because of the, the changes uh, that we have have had um, from a commercial and and lifestyle point of view. So it remains very much a growth area of the market. Um, you know, it's one reason why I think we continue to see um, areas of the U.S. stock market outperform because it's those areas, it's 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 on Wall Street or in the United States that we're seeing a lot of these innovations come from. Um, but I think it is one of those um, uh, sectors that has seen uh, increased growth and a lot of growth brought forward um, and growth expectations lifted um, just because of the way that the, the new economy will operate once, uh, once the pandemic is, is behind us. Mm, let's turn to the local markets now. The Straits Times Index snapped a six-day losing streak yesterday to close up nearly 2% at 1398. It is now about 9% up since the beginning of the year. What is your take on the Singapore market as we enter this last month of the year, Kyle? Um, I see it as being a potentially volatile one on the basis that there's going to be three things that investors from a macro point of view are going to be looking for. It's the, you know, obviously Omicron story and how that's going to affect global growth. It's what Chinese policymakers will have in store for the markets in 2022, and that all goes back to, to stimulus. And then on top of that as well, it's, it's going to be that global inflation and global growth pulse um, and, and how the Fed responds to that and monetary policy um, uh, policymakers respond to that too. Um, so, you know, it's really hangs in the balance at the moment as to, to which way those, those three factors go for, for global markets just, just broadly. Um, but I think that's um, going to be what really drives, you know, regional equities, Singapore equities, um, over the month ahead. Um, and again, it's just like we said off the top, you know, with, with a lot of these um, questions remaining unanswered, it probably means in the short term there's going to be a lot of volatility to cap off um, what's been you know, re- a reasonably successful year for, for stocks overall. Always terrific speaking with you, Kyle. Thanks for being here. Kyle Roder joining us live from Australia. He's an analyst with IG. Before acting on the information on Money FM, please consider if it's suitable for your own investment objectives, financial situation, and risk tolerance. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download our audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O. Available on Google Play or the App Store.